We saw dozens of LA's new electronic voting machines not working, even though the center was supposed to be up and running for early voting. Huh. Who could have predicted that? Crazy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Of course it isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, uh, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around fantastic guy. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, as we go to air, the stock market continues uh, to dive for the second day in a row due to concerns about the coronavirus. Uh, the Dow has plunged nearly 2,000 points over the past two days after the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's, uh, that's the CDC's, National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, said in a media briefing on Tuesday that Americans should be prepared for the spread of the coronavirus in communities across the country, adding, quote, it's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in the country will have severe illness. That has, of course, spooked investors, and I only hope that uh, CDC workers like her are protected from the whims of a vindictive president who is willing to lie and cheat and steal and fire anybody that he sees as getting in the way of his re-election hopes, including medical professionals who tell the truth to the American people about a potential pandemic. Yeah, that would be nice to have that. Yeah, kind it would of be. Concept. Yeah, so uh, she, uh, frankly, uh, that woman I think is more in danger of uh, from Donald Trump than she is of the coronavirus. Uh, for the record, the Trump administration has been pushing cuts to the CDC and gutting the federal government's team that handles things like global pandemics yeah, since we used, taking office. We used to have a global pandemic team, but Trump got rid of them a couple years ago. Yeah, who needs them? 
also, as we go to air, seven Democratic presidential candidates are preparing for the latest debate on uh, Tuesday night in Charleston, South Carolina, ahead of Saturday's crucial primary elections in the Palmetto State and the arguably even more crucial Super Tuesday primaries just three days later on March 3rd in 14 states, including the huge, delegate-rich states of of, uh, California and Texas. I will have a couple of points on uh, on on some of that uh, a bit in uh, including, yes, voting machine concerns and failures and problems in both South Carolina ahead of Saturday and California ahead of next week's Super Tuesday. You heard a bit of uh, a follow up at the top of the show just now from CBS 2, who uh, reported on concerns about Los Angeles uh, a few weeks ago. They did a follow up. Last night, and once again, uh, I show up in it. Also, uh, birthday girl Desi Doyen, <laughs> who I am apparently forcing to work on her birthday. Yes. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, you know, it's only the fate of the world and, you know, the future of the country. So I feel like important. I should step up and work. That a girl. <laughs> Uh, anyway, she will be here with a fresh green news report a little bit later. Uh, so happy birthday, Desi. And by the way, since this Thank trick you. worked uh, a little bit last year, if you stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work this week, I'll give it all to Desi Doyen. Ah, okay. For her birthday. <laughs> bradblog.com slash donate. If they won't give to me, maybe they'll give a damn about you, Desi. I can hardly blame them. It, it, it's the least uh, that, uh, listeners, it's the least that you can do to make up for my tyranny in making Desi work today. Uh, But on the heels of last Saturday's landslide victory for Bernie Sanders at the Nevada caucuses, a lot of folks, particularly longtime establishment Democrats, seem to be sort of freaking out about the possibility of Sanders' nomination for president by the party's voters. Though what they are freaking out about is not altogether clear. One of the biggest concerns about Sanders expressed by pretty much all of the remaining Democratic presidential candidates other than Elizabeth Warren is Sanders' lifelong fight to establish health care as a right, not a privilege in the United States, as it already is in most of the countries of the developed world that aren't named the United States. Sanders' plan for Medicare for All, he argues, would improve on the current Medicare system now available to those 65 and older by offering many more benefits than currently offered, including dental care, vision care, hearing aids, prescription drug and, drugs, and long-term care, and it would make all of those benefits available to all Americans free of charge. While it sounds good, Many Democrats fear his plan is either too costly, not realistic, or just too darn scary, since, as proposed, Medicare for All would end the need for private health care insurance entirely. So, yes, if adopted as written, you would no longer have to pay premiums and co-pays and other out-of-pocket expenses to your current private insurance company and health care provider, whether directly or via reductions in your current salary from your employer. But no, Medicare for All, like Obamacare before it, despite the false propaganda from opponents, is not a government takeover of the American health care system, as dishonest opponents have claimed. Yes, we would still have private doctors and nurses and hospitals, unlike, for example, 
the British National Health Service, which, because the UK is obviously a communist and or Marxist state that enslaves its people, is an actual socialized medical system where doctors actually do work directly for the government. Not so, however, in either the Sanders or Warren Medicare for All plans. Still, Medicare for All does frighten a lot of people for good reasons and bad, including good Democrats, establishment or otherwise, and some union leaders who have fought hard for their current private medical coverage benefits that they already receive through their employers and the unions themselves. That part of the pushback against Sanders' plan came to the forefront last week in Nevada when the powerful culinary union there decided to not endorse any candidate in the union-heavy states' caucuses after the union's leadership expressed concern about the loss of their hard-won medical benefits under a Sanders Medicare for All plan, that despite Sanders' long and unquestioned support for the labor movement. Workers should have the right to choose to keep the health care culinary union members have built, sacrificed for, and went on strike for six years, four months, and ten days to protect, said union leader Giaconda Arguella Klein in a statement just days before the caucuses took place. But while the leadership of the culinary union was trepidatious about Sanders' Medicare for All plan, many of their members, according to entrance polling at the caucuses last week, were less frightened by it. According to CNN, Sanders had by far the most support of any candidate among union members. As Richard R.J. Escow, a former healthcare industry executive, reported this week at The Intercept after Sanders' landslide win at the Nevada caucuses, despite a high-profile battle with the leadership of Nevada's powerful culinary workers' union leading into the caucuses on Saturday, Bernie Sanders emerged with a decisive victory, even dominating other candidates among culinary workers themselves, according to entrance surveys. The big fear expressed by union leadership, he writes, was the loss of the health care plan that workers fought for several years to achieve. But union members who caucused for Sanders against the advice of their leadership may have been better analysts of their own financial system than pundits expected. Indeed, he writes, if Sanders does manage to enact his Medicare for All plan as it's written, their coverage will improve. A review of the Culinary Union's health plan documents, along with other data sources, shows that it's done an excellent job under difficult circumstances. But the review also shows that the union's members would be much better off under Medicare for all and that this plan, like virtually every plan, is held back by deep flaws in today's health care system. Joining us now to discuss this analysis is Richard Eskow. Uh, he is the longtime freelance writer, political columnist, policy analyst, and the host and managing editor of the weekly radio and TV program, The Zero Hour. He is also, as I noted, a former insurance executive and served as a senior writer and editor for the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. And he is a senior advisor for health and economic justice at Social Security Works. Richard Eskow, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. 
Always great to talk with you, Brad. Uh, thanks for uh, for this uh, analysis, actually, Richard. It was uh, greatly appreciated at The Intercept. Uh, and really, it's an analysis of one of the great fears about Bernie Sanders and his Medicare for All proposal that seems to be terrifying a lot of folks, even if, as you explain in detail, it shouldn't. Uh, since I think the culinary union folks, as you report, have just about as uh, good of an employee health care plan as uh, anyone anywhere, their opposition to Medicare for all, uh, Richard, is certainly noteworthy. But you argue that Medicare for all would be even better for them. So very quickly, uh, give me some idea just in general. And I'll link to your report for specifics because it's long and it's detailed and it's very informative. Uh, but just in general about what makes this union's plan uh, in this case so good and uh, the years of struggle it took for their union members to win it? Well, in terms of why it's good, which makes it a perfect test case in a sense mm -hmm. for comparing Medicare for all to the best plans, right. uh, they've really done. Uh, I, I, <clears throat> my hat's off to the culinary union and to the workers who went on strike and fought for years to get this plan in the current environment we have now, it's just about as good a plan as you're going to see. It's in it's for workers in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. uh, which does not have a lot of provider choice. So, in order to give them care, the union not only won benefits, health care coverage for them, but set up clinics for them that are very well run, mm -hmm. have a very good reputation, provide a broad range of services. It is well ahead of most other plans, private insurance plans. Uh, private employer plans, uh, whether they are uh, union or otherwise, it's, it's really one of the best in terms of low amounts of co-payments, uh, no co-payments for many types of service, mm -hmm. low co-payments for others, no co-insurance, which, you know, is the process where uh, you have to pay, let's say if you go into the hospital, mm -hmm. maybe $500 up front and then 20% of the cost up to X thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. You don't have the, that's the coinsurance. You don't have that at all in most cases. Um, most in, in, the, purposes, in, the, in the union, in the culinary union's plan, you don't have In that. the culinary right. union's plan, right. Most services in their plan are covered 100% uh, up to what they call allowable charges. Right. So there's a control there. They do offer uh, some form of vision and dental coverage, which most employer plans don't. So they've won a lot of great things mm -hmm. for their unions, and they've done it for their union members, mm -hmm. and they've done it in a so-called right-to-work anti-union state. Mm -hmm. So well, they've managed to build something that allows them to attract members and you know collect dues and keep going. And a lot of their their workers are not especially well paid. So they've done a terrific job. I commend them for it, but they've had to do it in the current health care system. And that's where uh, the debate really goes off the rails. And, and, and is it fair to say, uh, when talking about a, a plan like that, is that one of the uh, so-called, uh, this came up during the uh, debate over Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, uh, one of these so-called uh, Cadillac plans that some workers have been able to negotiate for themselves? Is, is, it, is, is that what we're referring to? Uh, yeah. When we hear that, and which, by the way, before the Affordable Care Act, we were also told, oh, they're going to take away the Cadillac health care plans for some people, which I don't think they did in that case. Um, it was designed yeah. to do that. First of all, you know, I wrote a lot about the so-called 
the Cadillac Health Plan tax uh-huh. in the Affordable Care Act at the time, I find the term offensive, first of all, because it's suggesting that allowing people to get medical care without going broke is somehow a luxury they don't need. Mm-hmm. So I've always and consistently taken offense right. to it. Um, secondly, some plans are more important because you know, plan members are sicker. So uh, an ambulance is not a Cadillac, right? Um, but um, third, the Affordable Care Act originally was designed with a tax on higher-cost plans like this one mm-hmm. uh, to, quote-unquote, basically a, a kind of neoliberal, if you want to use that word, idea that people will then be smart shoppers and not get health care they don't need. All nonsense. So uh, because you really don't could, know what health care you are going to need and not need. I'd never understood that. It's, you know, when we hear, oh, people in our state, they have different needs. No, they don't. I mean, we all need health care and we have no idea what type of health care we may eventually need or not. Right. That's exactly right. And uh, I mean, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but I had very minor surgery a couple years ago, and as an experiment, I tried to be a smart shopper, bearing in mind that I probably have at this point 20-plus years of experience Mm -hmm. in social insurance and health insurance. It's just impossible to do. The information isn't there, even when you know you're Mm -hmm. about to get a surgery. So, so, uh, you know, it's a preposterous concept, and... But it was part of the Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act. It's been taken out since then because it was one thing that Republican and Democratic politicians could agree on is that nobody uh, and nobody's constituents mm-hmm. liked it. So, uh, yes, this would have been a, ca- uh, a Cadillac plan, so, I would assume. In any event, it's, it's, it really it represents, uh, as you describe it, Richard, uh, about the best medical care that any employer-based system uh, really has to offer. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to describe it? It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as, 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 as people uh, hear this discussion, um, is it fair to say that whatever private plan they may currently have through their own employer um, is, is likely not much better than what the culinary union folks have earned for themselves over all of these years? Is that correct? I would say the average person listening who has employer health insurance there's a very, the, the probability, the mm-hmm. 98, 99% probability is that their plan is not as good okay. as the culinary workers plan. And so with that in mind, uh, you offer a few bullet points after analyzing what their plan actually is, one of the very best in the nation. You offer a few bullet points uh, on this in the, in the plan comparison uh, section of your piece. So uh, how would, in general, how would Medicare for All be even better than what the Culinary Union in Nevada has, has already carved out for themselves? Well, for one thing, while the co-payments were relatively modest mm-hmm. in the Culinary Plan, there would be none under Medicare for All. And for vision and health care, where the benefits are not quite as good, they're better than average, mm-hmm. but, you know, you still have to pay something, uh, they would be um, considerably, there would be none. Mm-hmm. So once again, uh, people would make out considerably better. Perhaps the biggest area is that culinary workers uh, tend to work on an hourly basis, and if their, coverage, if their work hours fall below... 
uh, I think it's roughly two-thirds of mm-hmm. full-time uh, for two months in a row, uh, they have to pay for their he- at least part of their health insurance themselves. Mm-hmm. So that means if you're a culinary worker and you have the bad luck not to work full-time when you wanted to, you have the double bad luck of having to pay the difference in your health insurance. So that would go away. Mm-hmm. Um, that uncertainty, no matter if you were working at all, you'd still have 100% coverage. Um, then uh, yeah, I, talk, uh, I talk about shadow work. You know, our health insurance system requires you to do enormous amounts of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that would go away under Medicare. You mean work filling out, filling out forms and paperwork and calls and yeah, all that sort of stuff? Out, Knowing where you can save a copayment, knowing right. if you're, if you're, uh, the prescription the doctor gives you is the right one, mm-hmm. or you have to get a different one to pay less. Uh, making an appeal if they turn right. down, you're getting prior authorization, which you have to do for a lot of services, which can be very distressing when right. people are in need, you know, care. Uh, so you have all of that. Don't make a uh, mistake of having a heart attack outside your network provider's uh, ambulance services. I guess is one of those uh, things. You have to oh, you have to know absolutely. about. <laughs> Don't make a mistake while you're having an operation and you're under anesthetic of letting them bring <laughs> in an assistant surgeon who's not in your plan, right. so that you find yourself with a thousands of dollar uh, expense right. when you come to. So and, and you know th- there's all that level of precarity in the plan, uh, so that uh, and the maximum amount you can pay out of pocket in the culinary workers plan is six thousand three hundred and fifty dollars mm-hmm. per person, twelve thousand seven hundred dollars per family, and for a population that probably on average earns about thirty two thousand dollars a year full time equivalent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's, for any of us, it's a lot of money. For them, it, it's really a lot of money. Now, but, well, so... It, that would all go away. That, so that's, yeah. Yeah, then that would all go away. So there's a lot of things that even though uh, they were, again, focusing on the culinary union here uh, because it came up last week, but because they have just about the best uh, health care that, uh, you know, most people listening to this show probably have through their employers, the culinary union is probably better. And yet they would come out better, you are arguing, under Sanders Medicare for All. Is there things that they would lose that they should be concerned about uh, under a Medicare for All? plan that they would lose from their current uh, union plan? Well, first of all, just one thing to add, and this was kind of the trigger of, mm-hmm. of the conflict, uh, was uh, Bernie Sanders told them that they would get $12,000 back from their employers mm-hmm. in, wa- in wages or other benefits because his Medicare for All proposal says whatever money employers save mm-hmm. has to go back to the workers. And the union got very upset at that. And, you know, we could talk more about it. I did some under, I used my old underwriting skills from health insurance to find out if that was true or not. They would get something back and it would be significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what would they lose? Well, uh, the only thing that they were in danger of losing, uh, because it uh, yeah, either hadn't been clarified to the culinary union or uh, within certain, uh, you know, planners Mm -hmm. uh, on the Sanders and Warren team. I'm not clear where the hitch was, but uh, the the only real concern was, well, what if the culinary union has to shut down its clinics in the city of Las Vegas where it might be hard to find other people to treat these workers? That's a legitimate Mm -hmm. concern. Mm -hmm. So there was some discussion back and forth, and it was clarified at least 
that under the Sanders proposal, uh, those clinics would remain in operation and they'd, they'd get compensated by the national system mm -hmm. for the care they give. So the only real concern was addressed, and uh, and that's that's where it was left. No. And that's a legitimate concern, but uh, if those clinics can be kept open, they should be kept open, and they're just financed in a different way, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there should be no objection. Another sticking point, big sticking point for many who are concerned about Medicare for All is that Sanders uh, concedes that taxes would have to go up for the middle class. Uh, for the record, Elizabeth Warren's plan calls for payment uh, of Medicare for All without raising middle class taxes. Uh, but Sanders has been arguing that, uh, as you noted, the money currently spent by employers on health care would go back to the workers. Uh, in the case of the culinary workers, he suggested uh, that it would be uh, $12,000, I guess, on average savings per year. Uh, f that would go from the employers uh, back to the workers, in theory, uh, to cover any increases in their taxes to, to pay for Medicare for All. So what is the mechanism that is used, whether that $12,000 number is right or not, what is the mechanism that's used to assure that employers don't just keep the money that they would then no longer have to pay for, for health care for their workers, but in fact give it back to the employees instead? Well, what happens is that the employers are charged, they pay a payroll tax instead of whatever they're doing now, whatever mm -hmm. they're paying to, and I, I, I had a lot more material on this that didn't make it into the final, final article, mm -hmm. but, you know, there's a third-party claims administrator that gets paid under the Culinary Works Plan. There are all these other costs mm -hmm. added on. There's a pharmacy benefit manager, which in that industry has problems of its own. So uh, all of the costs put together, plus whatever the culinary union expenses are for its clinics and its plan administrators, right now employers are paying that, all those charges. Mm -hmm. uh, what would happen instead is that the employers would be assessed a payroll tax. So uh, instead of paying for a worker that makes $35,000 a year, instead of paying uh, I my most conservative mm -hmm. estimate was ten thousand dollars under mm -hmm. the current system. Uh, they would pay a percentage that uh, would, in almost every case, because they are lower paid workers, uh, be be significantly less than that. So the difference is what they would return back to the employer. And that would be built into the plan. This requirement that hey, because you're not paying X anymore through uh, these uh, payroll taxes for for health care that that must now go back to the employers. There would be some mechanism for that and some way to uh, to enforce that mechanism, presumably. Yes. I mean, that is the plan. Okay. That, uh, that they know we, the government would know what the payroll tax is. I, I frankly don't know what mechanism they've come up with to calc you know, find out what they're paying now, mm -hmm. except it's easy enough to do because they report their health insurance costs right now to the IRS so that they can take a tax break, uh, you know, a tax credit mm -hmm. from the IRS for the cost of their health insurance. Mm -hmm. So that information is already in one bucket, and it would be a matter of getting it to another bucket and then finding the difference between that and the payroll tax, and that's what they have to give back to the workers. So there, while you and I were talking, Brad, yeah. 
I created the mechanism to do it. There you go. Well, uh, although you're not working for Sanders this year, maybe you will be soon. Uh, we'll see how it goes. So if these numbers, uh, Sanders' analysis and, and your own uh, going over them, if they're accurate, what's with the freakout by union members? And don't know if it's the same reason or not, uh, the same freak out, a similar freak out from establishment Democrats. Let's start with the unions here. You note that uh, Reuters, for example, reported uh, last year in August that AFL-CIO head Richard Trumka said, you can't ask the American worker who sacrificed wages and everything to simply say, OK, I'll accept this plan here. Trump also noted that some union plans likely provide more benefits than Medicare. Well, your response to Trumpka on this, because that's a huge uh, union, obviously, which Dems desperately need to uh, win their support if they're going to take back the White House this year. How do you respond to Trumpka? Well, it's simple. First of all, let's let's be clear. Uh, the union movement in this country is under attack, and it needs to be stronger, mm-hmm. not weaker. And I think, I don't want to speak for, uh, you know, Rich Trumpka or anybody, uh, culinary uh, union leaders or anybody else, but uh, I can imagine a situation where they think, well, one of the things that keeps our membership loyal is we've been able to get them good health benefits compared Mm. to non-union workers. I get that. Mm. Uh, I get that there's a transitional concern there. But they also have to represent the best interests of their workers, and I think in the end they all will do that. But it's clear, you know, you can debate Medicare for All on all sorts of grounds if you want to, mm-hmm. but you can't say anything other than it's the best plan. A culinary union is a great plan, is mm-hmm. a great test case for that. It's going to be better for workers than any current plan out there, mm. including any current union plan out there. So, look, you know, you can argue about whatever you want. I think in the end it's the right thing to do for workers. I think the great skills and tenacity that union leaders and union workers like those in Nevada have shown can be applied to other challenges of wages, of, mm-hmm. of child care, of other things they're going to need to fight for if we get Medicare for all. Um, and then I guess Trumpco was just ill-advised because he went on to say some union plans likely provide more benefits than Medicare. That's true, but we're not talking about Medicare. Medicare for all gives better benefits. Right. So, so you've got this pushback. I, I'm sure culinary, I, don't want, I assume culinary union leaders in Nevada thought, well, we worked our butts off to create this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie comes flying in here, says, uh, you know, I can see how they might have been triggered, and then they got flamed a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, and they were protecting their uh, what they see as their territory. Because, I, you know, I'm wondering, oh, are they not doing the same analysis that you are, Richard Escal? I mean, clearly they can do it as well. Uh, but you're right. There may be some measure of, uh, hey, we, we need to protect our territory, not necessarily the health care here, but uh, one of the benefits that we offer by being in a union is, hey, you get this great health care. If everybody gets it, well, that's one less uh, argument, I guess, they can make uh, to join the union. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I want to be clear, too, yeah. because in my old life, I at one point, you know, I would analyze these plans for unions. Uh-huh. And they would say, should we take these new benefits or a buck more per hour? You know, you got to kind of price it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of union leaders 
do wholeheartedly support Medicare for All. Sarah Nelson at the Association of Flight Attendants, who's terrific, Mary Kay Henry at SEIU. There's this advocacy group, Labor Labor for Single single Payer. Mm -hmm. There's 21 unions, United Auto Workers, United Mine Workers. So it's not as if all unions are reacting against Mm -hmm. uh, Medicare for All. I think maybe in retrospect a little diplomacy on the part of this Anders and Warren campaign. I don't know, maybe could have smoothed this over. Um, but whatever, you know, union, yeah. uh, eventually I think the labor movement will unify behind Medicare for all. I got to get out here shortly, uh, Richard, but, um, you conclude by noting, uh, quote, perhaps the union believes it's unreasonable to accept Sanders Medicare for all plan to be enacted as written and that some of the generosity will be stripped out as it's whittled down to some version of a public option instead. You say that's not an unreasonable concern, but in such a scenario, the the fear they expressed, the loss of their private insurance, would be safely off the table because now we'd be back at a, a, a public option plan. Well, that is true in that scenario, Richard. But what if Medicare for All actually is adopted, but with less generous benefits uh, that Sanders and you are currently describing? Is is that a legitimate fear of these groups? I don't think so. I mean, I guess it's a possibility, but... but uh if that's the case, there'll have to be some kind of negotiation. I don't see that happening, though. I see the centrist politicians not angling for lower benefits, but, but because I believe they're doing the beck and call of the insurance companies, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think what they're saying instead is we got to keep the, the private profit-taking insurance companies in the mix here. And as long as that happens, as long as they have their what they call choice, mm-hmm. and I call bait and switch, uh, then the un- the uh, culinary union plan is safe. Would, uh, last question here, would Elizabeth Warren's plan, uh, therefore, under the premise that, oh, it's going to take time uh, and a lot of politics and a lot of arm pulling, uh, you know, to, to get uh, Medicare for all passed, uh, and it could be watered down in the in the meantime in order to get it passed. But would Elizabeth Warren's plan, therefore, be a more palatable way to go for some union members who who might like the idea of Medicare for all, but they're also trepidatious. Uh, but she f- vows to fight for Medicare for all, but concedes that at first an expansion of, of Obamacare with a public option might be necessary first, a, a more immediate step to take before getting there. Does her well, plan speak to those concerns any more than, than Bernie's does? No, I, I love Elizabeth Warren in many ways, but I think her Medicare for All plan is designed to fail. I don't know that. I don't mean that that's her intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know her intent, but it, it has this kind of well. First, we'll do public option, and then I'm going to fight, as you said, for Medicare for All. Well, first of all, you have to build a huge infrastructure f- to to make the public option work. Mm-hmm. Then dismantle it in a year or two, according to her timetable. Doesn't make sense. And secondly, as soon as it's passed. Uh, the 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 war will begin to make sure that this nothing further gets passed. <laughs> yeah. So you know Bernie's plan and and her original Warren's original plan had a four year phase in that makes a perfect amount of sense. But if people are if you're saying you can use that four years to stop me and in the meantime I've given you a compromise, I just think it's common sense to believe you'll never get any further and you'll be keeping 
all the problems with the current system in place. Richard R.J. Escow is a former insurance executive and a former senior writer and editor for the Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, he is a uh, longtime writer, political analyst, and the host of the weekly radio and TV program, The Zero Hour, which you can watch and or listen to anytime via thisisthezerohour.com. You can find him on the Twitters at R.J. Escow. And his article this week on all of this, uh, again, came out after the uh, Nevada uh, caucuses. So this was not a matter of uh, trying to convince the unions. Uh, this is uh, headlined at The Intercept. Culinary workers bucked their leadership by backing Bernie Sanders in Nevada. Here's what they knew. Richard, always great speaking with you, my friend. I suspect we will be doing it again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, brother. Okay, quick break, and we're back with some updates. Yes, voting problems uh, across the country, including right here in Los Angeles. That story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Get it right the first time, that's the main. But I didn't get it right the first time, so correction, I've got to issue a correction. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Ginger writes, following uh, our previous Bradcast, she writes in to me via email at bradcast at bradblog.com to say, Hi Brad, I believe you misspoke in mentioning that Alvin Green lost in the South Carolina primary in some past year. You meant one. Yes. You might want to correct this in a subsequent broadcast to reinforce how illogical the outcomes of unverifiable voting machines can be. Best regards, Ginger. Well said, Ginger. Thank you, Ginger. You're absolutely right. I went back and listened to yesterday's show. Apparently, my mouth sometimes says things different than what my brain is thinking. Uh, and I was talking about the brand new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that all voters at the polling place will be forced to use this Saturday in the crucial South Carolina primaries. Those systems, they're made by ES&S. They replace the previous 100% uh, unverifiable touchscreens that South Carolina had used for at least a decade and which had failed in election after election, including in the 2010 primary election. 
Democratic primary election where Alvin Green, a guy that nobody had ever heard of who had no job, no campaign website, did not uh, do any actual campaigning, didn't even own a cell phone. Somehow that guy won in a Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate on these unverifiable machines against Victor Rall, a well-known uh, longtime state judge and legislature, uh, legislator, uh, who did campaign all over the state. Somehow he lost to this nobody on South Carolina's machines made by ES&S in a way that no political scientist at the time was able to actually explain. Green won the primary for the U.S. Senate, uh, leaving computer scientists at the time to argue that the only reasonable explanation was a failure of some type whether nefarious or not, uh, we don't know, in those voting machines. That was the only thing that could explain it at the time. And we don't know, by the way, because they weren't allowed to uh, do a full, proper forensic analysis of those machines. In any event, uh, Green, who won the Democratic primary, went on to lose handily that year. Surprise, surprise, in the general election to the Republican, uh, the at the time incumbent Senator Jim DeMint, who polls showed uh, would have been in a tough battle with Rawl had he won the Democratic primary. But he didn't. Uh, DeMint, uh, who ended up uh, beating Green and then uh, resigned shortly thereafter from the U.S. Senate. And he went to work to head up the uh, Wingnut Heritage Foundation, where he was also, by the way, later pushed out. But he was replaced in the U.S. Senate by the Republican governor's hand-picked appointment at the time. So, yeah, Green uh, won the primary inexplicably on these old, unverifiable touchscreen systems made by ES&S in South Carolina. And now voters will be using all new unverifiable touchscreen systems made by the very same company, ES&S, that uh, failed so miserably in the past. And that Alvin Green uh, election is just one example in South Carolina. But that's what uh, they're doing to voters because they hate them, apparently, in South Carolina, instead of, uh, you know, letting them vote on verifiable hand-marked paper ballots for all voters. I don't know. Maybe they don't hate the voters. Maybe they just hate democracy. In any event, sorry for that error. Uh, thank you, Ginger, for catching it. Uh, I much appreciate the correction. As always, whenever it's necessary, please send me same to bradcast at bradblog.com. Okay, in a, uh, in a related note here, as usual, you heard it here first on the Bradcast yesterday. Well, uh, last night after our show on our local CBS affiliate out here in Los Angeles, CBS 2 L.A., investigative reporter David Goldstein, uh, who did a piece on the concerns, my concerns, about L.A. County's new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens that's out here in L.A. County, that, yes, it is not just these backwards uh, red states forcing their voters who hate their voters or democracy so much they're forcing them to vote on one of these uh, systems. Uh, they're doing that out here in L.A. County this year as well, as we've been talking about for quite a while in the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, five and a half million registered voters. Uh, we will uh, we are now voting on new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. Uh, well, last night, David Goldstein did a follow up 
uh, on his feature from a few weeks ago, which uh, included yours truly talking about all of the concerns with these systems. He did a follow up last night uh, on the new systems, which were supposed to be available for the first day of early voting on Saturday in advance of next Tuesday's March 3rd Super Tuesday primary in 14 states, including here in California, with more than 400 delegates up for grabs. But as we told you yesterday on the show, those uh, early voting sites, a bunch of them had a whole bunch of problems in a whole bunch of places. Uh, and David Goldstein went out yesterday and apparently found uh, similar problems. Last night on CBS2, he offered a similar report, which once again features yours truly, if you can figure out which one I am, since you can't see my name on the screen in this uh, in this follow up. Uh, here was uh, Goldstein's report on this. Voting is now underway in parts of L.A. County, but not in all the places where it's supposed to be happening. CBS2 investigative reporter David Goldstein found out there's still some bugs in the system. 200 voting centers were supposed to be open starting last Saturday, part of this new computerized system giving people 11 days to vote. But we found more than two dozen centers couldn't open because of equipment problems. Okay, I'm with Channel 2 News. I'm just okay, can you just please wait outside? Please wait outside. At the Hollywood Voting Center, they wanted no part of our cameras. Guys, you're not allowed in this room. Right this second, you need to wait outside, please. We saw dozens of L.A.'s new electronic voting machines sitting idle, not working, even though the center was supposed to be up and running for early voting starting last Saturday for next week's primary. In the corner, this technician reading what looked like a manual trying to figure out how to get the system online. They're not working because the router is, we need to, we're waiting for the router of AT&T to come. The machines have been 10 years in the making. They cost taxpayers $300 million to develop. But as we reported a few weeks ago, not everyone thinks they'll work properly. How much confidence should people have in this new system here in LA? None. None? Zero. But the registrar disagrees. How much confidence should voters have in these new machines? I think voters can have a great deal of confidence. <laughs> the registrar's office said approximately 30 of 229 locations didn't open on time because of issues with equipment. Sources say voters were turned away and told to go to other locations until the centers were up and running. We're, 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 we're this close. We're, we're, like, we're, we're like this close. Okay. Late today, the registrar's office said all of the centers were finally open, and they add that more than 10,000 people have already voted. More locations will open this weekend and stay open through next Tuesday's primary. I'm David Goldstein, CBS2 News. So there you go. Um, the registrar says they're all up and working now. Of course, all meaning uh, the small amount that were open for early voting. There's supposed to be a thousand of them open on Election Day, March 3rd. Uh, and I'm not sure how many of them are supposed to open over the weekend in advance. But I hope it's all of them. Because I'm really hoping that if they have problems like the ones they've had here, that those get shaken out somehow on Saturday and Sunday before the uh, crucial Tuesday elections, which are in a thousand voting uh, centers. You can if you're in L.A., you can now vote at any voting center that replaces the 5000 community precincts that we had 
uh, for decades. For decades, yeah. And I'm quite worried that a lot of people are going to go to their old precinct and find out there ain't no voting there this yes, year. Yes, folks who haven't had time to really pay attention, who are going to rush out in a hurry and try to get this all done, and then they're going to find, surprise, it's not what you thought. And I'm worried. You heard that woman uh, who said that they couldn't start, people couldn't start voting because they were waiting for to fix the router for AT&T to show up. Good luck with that. This is insane. These machines, which they continue to say, well, they don't rely on the Internet to vote. They don't you don't have to worry about them being hacked. Well, they do rely on the Internet because the check in system, the electronic poll book systems require the Internet uh, to look up your name and then to print out your computerized barcode ballot that you then bring into one of the machines and vote on the touchscreen machines. And then that paper is scanned by another computer. Uh, not to mention all of these machines are programmed by computers that, yes, are connected to the Internet at one time or another. So there is all kinds of things that can go wrong. And I know someone wrote to me in, uh, after all the problems over the weekend on the first day of of uh, early voting and said, oh, Brad, you're probably uh, smiling right now. No, I am not smiling. I was not hoping that these things would fail. I was fearing these things would fail. I also fear that if they work as designed, nobody can know if they properly reflect the vote of any voter. I don't worry about that. I know that is the case, even if these go well. Anyway, uh, we're doing all we can. Um, you know, I have uh, told people it, it, by midnight on Tuesday, February 25 in L.A., you can go to lavote.net and request a vote by mail ballot and then deliver it in person. If you haven't done that, if you live in L.A., you can also ask for a write in ballot, hand marked write in ballot at the voting centers, although. Uh, reports I have been getting back is that a lot of the poll workers don't even know that option exists. <sighs> we will keep up the fight as if we have a choice. Uh, speaking of keeping up the fight, Desi Doyen, <laughs> you have no choice either. You're up next with the Green News Report right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay right there. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, I think I need to note uh, once again, all proceeds to bradblog.com slash donate. We'll be going to birthday girl Desi Doyen this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, that, well, it will, but, you know, nobody, if, when I say, hey, help me out, why would they do that? But you, much sweeter, much prettier, I much agree. nicer. 
<laughs> and it's your birthday. Bradblog.com slash donate. Can can you help out, Des, All just right, a little bit? All right, thank you. Here? Yes, thank you, thank you. Okay. All right. <laughs> running ha- out of time. Happy birthday. Thank you. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. You want a total ban on nat- natural gas extraction, yep. fracking in the next five years. Climate change gets a moment at the Nevada Democratic debate. The barricades must now come down. Natural gas pipeline protesters blockade Canadian rail lines. Climate impact of oil and gas production worse than previously known. Plus, Tech Resources is walking away from its proposed $20 billion oil sands mine. Big oil company drops Alberta tar sands mine. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This is an existential threat. You know what that means, Chuck? Yes, he knows what that means, Bernie. That means we're fighting for the future of this planet. I know. I know, Bernie. We're trying. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, good news, I think. Uh, We have once again seen the climate crisis come up in a Democratic presidential debate in a rather substantive manner. Yeah, it got some serious attention in the Nevada Democratic presidential debate. Not that you would know it because they were all fighting with each other. So everyone talked about that instead of the substance. But, you know. Other than that, though, on the broadcast, we analyzed that climate section in depth with policy experts who said that the climate policies of Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren are most aligned with targets indicated by climate science. A major policy difference, however, among the Democratic presidential contenders is whether to ban fracking for oil and gas. Sanders and Warren call for a ban, but former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Amy Klobuchar, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg and and billionaire Michael Bloomberg call natural gas a transition fuel on the path to decarbonization, accompanied by more stringent regulation and oversight of the industry. A transition to what? But on the broadcast, climate policy expert Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara warned that that's not what the science indicates. To limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we cannot build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. That is what the research shows. So yes, if we talk about what the next Democratic administration should do, they should begin the process as soon as possible to start phasing that out. And now a disturbing new study warns that the oil and gas industry has had a far worse impact on the climate than previously thought. The study concluded that methane leaks from oil and gas production may have been underestimated by as much as 40 percent. Methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide over shorter time periods. So if further studies can confirm these findings, it could mean that we are in store for more warming sooner than predicted. Well, who could have predicted that? Meanwhile, the growing spread of the coronavirus has triggered a downturn in oil stocks and the broader stock market over fears that the virus will impact global economic growth. The impact of the virus on economic activity has already cut China's demand for oil, and that has caused China's greenhouse gas emissions to drop about 25 percent. Yay, coronavirus. Well, the reduction in China's emissions is, of course, only temporary, but experts say that the outbreak 
highlights the vulnerability of the global economy to unpredictable shocks. Don't worry, we'll have another global pandemic and everything will be just fine. More bad news for big oil. A Finland government research report warns that the economics of the oil industry are increasingly unsustainable. And it arrives at the somewhat shocking conclusion that, quote, the economic viability of the entire global oil market could come undone within the next few years. Wow, maybe that's what Jim Cramer over at CNBC was talking about just a week or two ago when he advised people to get out of fossil fuel stocks. Meanwhile, in Canada, on Monday, police began arresting anti-pipeline protesters who have blockaded and shut down major rail networks across the country. It's in support of the First Nations Wet'suwet'en tribe. The tribe opposes the construction of a new natural gas pipeline through their territory in northern British Columbia. The tribe's hereditary chiefs say they do not consent to the project on their lands. Finally, a New York Times analysis finds that some of the world's largest financial institutions are divesting from companies that get revenue from Canada's destructive tar sands oil project. They must have been listening to Jim Cramer. The increasingly uneconomic outlook for the project, also combined with growing public pressure, has caused a major driller to drop out. On Monday, Canadian firm Tech Resources withdrew its application to construct a massive new $20 billion tar sands mine in Alberta. Wow, that's good news. Does that mean there won't be enough juice to run through the Keystone XL pipeline now? Probably not. Really? Yeah. There's always more, isn't there? Yeah. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I don't like it at all. Yeah. I don't care for it. There is... Always more oil and gas, but uh, that's going to just have to stop, says you, right? Yes, says the science and yeah. the scientists. We do have to keep it all in the ground, so that's eventually going to happen. It's all over pretty much, but the shouting, but there's going to be a lot of shouting. There's going to be a lot of shouting, oh, and yes. still a lot of oil and gas taken out of the ground, unfortunately, oh, yeah. and it's going to get worse and worse. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks yep. to my, uh, my producer, my birthday girl producer working today. <laughs> Thank you, Des. Also to my guest today, the Intercept. Richard R.J. Escow, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And yes, all proceeds at bradblog.com slash donate are going to the charity we describe as Desi Doyen this <laughs> week, who has to work on her birthday. Uh, you can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow with our special coverage of the latest Democratic presidential debate out of South Carolina. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>